All right. Greetings, one and all. Welcome to the first ever Ask Me Anything episode of The Art of Crime, capping off the first ever season of The Art of Crime. As always, I'm your host, Gavin Whitehead, and there's not much to say up front, so why don't we cue the music and get right to it? So before we dive into the questions, I'd like to take a moment to thank listeners who have signed up as patrons in recent weeks. So massive thanks to Shauna Scott, Kat Adair, Stephen Dews, and Bob Sussick. Your contributions are truly invaluable and go a long way in keeping the show going. I also want to take the opportunity to announce a pledge drive that we're doing uh, on Patreon. So our page is patreon.com slash artofcrimepodcast. This pledge drive is inexpressibly exciting if you want my unbiased opinion. So here's, here's the deal. I've set a new goal. I would like us to reach 100 patrons by September 1st. That's six months away from the date of this episode's release. And if we get 100 patrons by September 1st, I will write an episode and use my knowledge of the Victorian period in general and Jack the Ripper in particular to frame an artist for the Whitechapel murders. Uh, I'll make this episode available to patrons only. So that's our goal. Again, if you like the show and would like to support it, please consider becoming a patron. You can do so at patreon.com slash artofcrimepodcast. Okay, enough of that. Let's get to the questions. So the first one comes from Claire Marie, who lives outside Poitiers, France. Claire Marie asks, what part of the world are you from? Um, I live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which is in the American South for listeners who may not know. My family moved here in 2000, and I've lived here more or less ever since, uh, though I went to grad school elsewhere. By the way, Claire Marie and I had a lovely exchange by email, and she brought my attention to a curious book written in French and published by a French woman. This book is titled Jack L'Aventure Démasqué, Jack the Ripper Unmasked, and it purports to present the definitive solution to the Whitechapel murders. Of course, this puts us at definitive solution number 1,438,000 or something like that, but who's counting? And I was fascinated to learn about this book because obviously there's a massive cottage industry of ripper writing in English, but I had no idea that the French had also weighed in on the crimes. So I was very interested to learn about this. The next question comes from Basil, who lives in Johannesburg, South Africa. Basil asks, who writes the music for the show? It's awesome. It is awesome, Basil, and I feel comfortable saying that because I do not write any of it, not a note of the music. So the man behind the music is named Liam Bellum, Liam Bellman Sharp, and we met in grad school. Liam is a professional composer and sound designer, and we're both musicians, so we sort of bonded over that. I play the drums, and Liam plays guitar, plus about a dozen other instruments. Uh, and part of why we get along is... Uh, that we have a mutual love of odd time signatures and complex rhythms, stuff of that nature. 
And apropos of odd time signatures and unusual rhythms, I wanted to reveal a tasty secret about one of Liam's compositions for the unusual suspects that I would wager you never would have picked up on unless I told you about it. So uh, the composition in question comes in our episode on Michael Maybrick. And of course, it will be remembered that Michael Maybrick served as the grand organist for the Freemasons uh, at about the time of the Whitechapel murders. And Liam wanted to write a musical theme that would play more or less when Michael Maybrick entered the episode and which would recur throughout. So when he composed that theme, he wrote it for organ, which of course makes good sense. Michael Maybrick was a maestro on the organ, so it made sense for his theme to be composed for that instrument. But here's where it gets pretty slick. So Liam studied The Magic Flute by Mozart in undergrad. And as you may also remember from the episode on Michael Maybrick, there's this ridiculous conspiracy theory holding that Freemasons poisoned Mozart for betraying their secrets in The Magic Flute, which is chock-a-block with Masonic symbolism. Most of what Liam remembered from this lecture was that the Freemasons had this fixation on the number three. It was sort of a magic number for them. And so when he wrote Michael Maybrick's theme, he wanted to incorporate the number three somehow. So he wrote this piece of organ music in an odd time signature, namely 9-8. So basically every measure of this melody consists of three groups of three eighth notes. I mean, come on. I mean, that's that's a class, class act, right? I mean, that's ridiculous. I had no idea myself until <laughs> Liam told me in a text message So that was awesome. A lot of time and creativity goes into writing these scores and Liam does a bang up job. Okay, moving on. Next question comes from none other than my mom who does listen to the show in case anyone was wondering. She also lives in North Carolina and she says, she asks, where did your interest in Jack the Ripper come from? Um, Another way of asking this question might be, have I gone wrong raising you? And the answer to that question is, no, it's nothing you did, mom. It's more of what dad did, but we'll get to that in a second. So part of why my mom asked this question is because my family took a trip to London when I was in ninth grade. I would have been about 13 or 14 years old at the time. And on this vacation, I insisted, just insisted that we go on a Jack the Ripper walking tour. That was what I most wanted from my first time in London. Uh, And while I very distinctly remember the walking tour, I had completely forgotten that I was the one who demanded that we go on it. So where did this fascination come from? Uh, I can pinpoint pretty much the exact moment when I became really interested in Jack the Ripper. It happened about three years earlier in 2001. I would have been in sixth grade at the time. Uh, 2001 saw the spectacular release of From Hell starring Johnny Depp and Heather Graham. And for some reason when it came out, I really wanted to see it. I don't know why. I might have known about Johnny Depp from Edward Scissorhands or Tim Burton's rendition of Sleepy Hollow or something. I might have been vaguely familiar with Jack the Ripper before the movie came out and known that he was an infamous serial killer. And, you know, I had a sort of morbid fascination with such things, even when I was in my preteens, apparently. The movie was rated R, 
And for listeners outside the United States, uh, an R rating means that the film is restricted. So you have to be 17 years old or old or older to get in, or you need a parent to buy you a ticket. So somehow I convinced my dad to take me and my brother to see From Hell. And I thought I had scored a major victory. I had not expected him to agree to it since I really wasn't allowed to see R-rated movies at this point. So we watched the first 20 minutes of the movie and it comes to a scene where the police discover Annie Chapman's hideously mutilated body on Hanbury Street. And I think there's dialogue about how she worked at least part-time as a prostitute to scrape by in Whitechapel. The language is really euphemistic, but it also refers to the genital mutilation that she suffered at the hands of the Ripper. And I guess it was just the straw that broke the camel's back at this point. My dad was just like, nope, we are out of here. This is not appropriate for my 12-year-old in sixth grade. So he just stood up right in the middle of the scene and effectively dragged me and my brother out of the theater. (laughs) It was the only time I've gone to a movie with my parents, with either of my parents, and had to leave midway through. But, you know, it was the power of prohibition. As soon as my dad said, you cannot see this movie about Jack the Ripper, I wanted to know as much as I possibly could about Jack the Ripper. And at that, from that point forward, I took, I guess, a little more than a casual interest um, in the case and went out of my way to do some reading. I will say, in truth, that I, I did not do a deep dive into the Whitechapel murders until researching this season, but I definitely, you know, harbored an interest in the Ripper crimes for quite some time. But yeah, that's where it all started. It was an aborted outing to From Hell, starring Johnny Depp and Heather Graham. Actually, it would be many years before I watched the whole movie, and I'm not sure it was worth the wait. In fact, I'm pretty sure it wasn't, because it's not that great. Um, But hey, there you go. All right, moving on. Moving right along. So the next two questions come from the same person, namely Nikki, who lives in Houston, Texas, also in the United States. So Nikki asks, what was your favorite book you read while doing research? Okay, favorite book would probably be The Five by Hallie Rubenhold. This is just an extraordinary piece of historical writing. And Rubenhold reconstructs the lives and deaths of the five canonical Ripper victims you know, she really brings Victorian London alive. You just can hear and it sometimes even smell the world and you, you get a sense of what it was like to live in Whitechapel, but also elsewhere in London because, you know, Annie Chapman lived in more salubrious parts of town. And of course, you have uh, Elizabeth Stride who grew up in Sweden and she takes a lot of time in developing that location as well. So it's just an incredibly immersive read and it takes you back in time. And also Rubenhold shows a lot of compassion for the victims, which is commendable. And many Ripper writers uh, show less compassion than we might like them to while discussing the case. Honorable mention goes to the biography Lewis Carroll by Morton N. Cohen. This is just a beautifully written biography. I honestly didn't know much about Lewis Carroll before researching him for the podcast, nor had I done much reading about Alice in Wonderland. And there's a fantastic chapter that just discusses the significance of Alice in Wonderland within the context of um, children's literature and the history of that genre. I had not thought deeply about 
the book at all. And Cohen has spent, uh, you know, much, if not most of his career thinking about it. So I learned a lot from that chapter. I also loved a chapter primarily about Lewis Carroll's photography. So what I did not know until I picked up this book was that uh, many historians consider Lewis Carroll to be one of the great photographers of the 19th century, like one of the best. So that was fascinating to learn. And the biography includes a lot of photographs that Lewis, Ch- uh, that Lewis Carroll took of various children and sometimes their families. And he does get a really charming energy out of a lot of his sitters. And yeah, of course, photography is interesting in the context of his biography because he made the acquaintance of Alice Liddell, who to some degree inspired the fictional Alice um, because her father, a dean at Oxford, invited Carol over to photograph the Liddell family. So that's interesting. Yeah, I, I recommend that book. Another thing that I cannot help but mention right now is my favorite Ripper movie that I watched while researching this podcast. It's called Murder by Decree, and I only just found out about it a few weeks ago and watched it, and good God, is it excellent. It's directed by Bob Clark, who directed one of my all-time favorite slashers, Black Christmas, which came out in, I want to say, 1974. It's absolutely horrifying, and Believe it or not, this is a Sherlock Holmes adventure in which Watson and Holmes solve the Whitechapel murders. And you know what? They reveal a Freemasonic conspiracy underlying it all. So it definitely draws on Stephen Knight's book, Implicating the Freemasons. And it is fantastic, though. And it's not fantastic just because it's a bonkers ripper movie, including Sherlock Holmes. It's actually an excellent movie, probably one of the best Sherlock Holmes movies I've ever seen. And it's also quite frightening. There are a couple of sequences that are uh, that include point of view shots where you're sort of placed in the perspective of the killer as he's stalking his victims. And they are extremely unnerving. You hear a lot of heavy breathing from the actor who plays Jack the Ripper. And it's it's just so disquieting. But it's also just thick with a lot of atmosphere. And you have like, you know, gaslit London and the fog and hackney coaches, um, you know, rolling down the cobblestones and all that. Christopher Plummer plays Sherlock Holmes and gives a terrific performance. I mean, it's really one of the most interesting Holmes I've seen in a while, partly because... He shows more warmth and compassion than just about any other homes I've seen on screen or on stage. So I really appreciated it for that reason. It's not a perfect movie by any means. The denouement kind of drags on longer than you might like it to, but it really is worth a watch. It's called Murder by Decree. It's easy to find. So yeah, check it out if you're interested. All right, next question, also from Nikki in Houston, Texas. She asks, what suspect was the most fun to research? Another fun question. So... I would definitely go with Richard Mansfield, the actor who originated the dual role of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and, of course, was playing it in London at the time of the killing spree. Uh, So I was a theater historian in my past life, and uh, I wrote a dissertation on horror theater in London from 1794 to 1931. And I've also been a lifelong fan of the horror genre in general and horror movies in particular. Part of why I wanted to go see From Hell when I was like in sixth grade. So yeah, I mean, the, the horror genre has a special place in my heart, um, as does horror theater. And of course, Jekyll and Hyde is about as horrifying as it got. 
on the 19th century stage. I actually found out about the allegation that Mansfield had committed the Whitechapel murders while researching my dissertation. So I knew about that before I'd even started researching this podcast. But I got a kick out of uh, reading eyewitness accounts of Mansfield's portrayal of Hyde in particular and really reconstructing what it looked like on stage and why it terrified audience members to the extent that it did. This was really time-consuming, but also rewarding. You basically just have to read through a bunch of newspaper reviews, but also you can glean some insight from like interviews that Mansfield gave to the press as well, and also from biographies written about him. I also liked reconstructing the famed transformation scene where he goes from Hyde to Jekyll right before the audience's eyes. And I think I came up with a detailed reconstruction of it for that episode. I also enjoyed going back to the Jekyll and Hyde novella by Robert Louis Stevenson. And I gained just a new appreciation of how ill-suited it is to dramatization. Like nobody really does anything in that novel. And a lot of what happens we find out about by way of like revelatory letters or just some other report, you know? So I think uh, Mansfield and uh, his collaborator, Thomas Russell Sullivan, really had their work cut out for them in adapting that novella for the stage. And so that was fascinating as well. Yeah, Richard Mansfield. All right, moving right along. Next question is not a question, uh, but rather more of a comment. And it comes from Michael, who lives in Islesbury, UK. I logged on to the, F- the Art of Crime Facebook page shortly after we published our episode on the men who caught Crippen. And of course, Crippen was Dr. Holly Harvey Crippen, who poisoned his wife, Cora, otherwise known as Belle Elmore, and then uh, fled the British capital with his mistress, Lenev, both of them wearing disguises. And then Walter Dew, a Scotland Yard detective, donned a disguise while bringing them to justice. And part of why I included this bonus episode in the season was because Willie Clarkson, the wig maker and costume designer, is said to have supplied Crippen and Lenev with their outfits as they were getting the hell out of Dodge. So this episode had just come out, and I log on to the Facebook page, and I'm confronted with this gigantic chunk of text there in a comment. Someone had responded to the Facebook post about the episode. And I start reading this chunk of text, and I see that a guy named Michael has written it. And I'm like, whoever Michael is, he knows a lot about Dr. Crippen and Willie Clarkson. And he is furthermore convinced that Clarkson did, in fact, furnish the fugitives with their disguises as they were running away. And I'm reading through, I mean, he he has really re- done his research. He's even determined that Willie Clarkson and Crippen had the same solicitor. I'm just like, who is this guy? So about two-thirds of the way down the post, he says, under my pen name, P. William Grimm, I released the wig maker of Wellington Street. And I'm just like, holy shit, this is P. William Grimm. Um, P. William Grimm, of course, was the documentarian who named the wig maker and costume designer Willie Clarkson as a ripper suspect. We talked about that film in um, the second episode of The Unusual Suspect. So somehow, P. William Grimm, also known as Michael, or I guess Michael, also known as P. William Grimm, uh, found out about the show and has been following it, I think, for 
most of the season. So it was really fun to hear from him. And I was, um, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I wrote a dissertation on theater in London from, you know, throughout the 19th century, basically. And I was aware of Willie Clarkson through my research, but he remains a very obscure figure within theater history. Most theater historians would not have heard of him, even those who study, like, British theater history. You know, maybe Victorianists probably would know his name. Uh, So I was curious about how Michael had found out about Willie Clarkson, I asked, and he gave me an interesting story. So I'm just going to share a little bit of that with y'all. So he says... My path to discovering Willie Clarkson is an odd one. I was producing a documentary on a very obscure mid-20th century British vicar who was a pioneer of introducing religious films into Church of England sermons and indeed was the first British vicar to use a film in a sermon in Islesbury, UK, where... Michael is from. Yeah, that is pretty obscure. So while conducting his research, Michael came across an autobiography by a famous British actor. And in that that autobiography, he read about an anecdote involving Willie Clarkson. And I guess this anecdote, whatever it was, made a strong impression on Michael. He says, Clarkson seemed interesting. So I went to the British library to read the two books on him And he was so fascinating after that I was just hooked for some reason and have studied him ever since, which really, which is really just a treasure hunt for the rare mention of his name. (laughs) I love that. Then he goes on here. He's referring to his own Ripper theory about Willie Clarkson. He says, I still classify the theory as quite fanciful. In any event, a very peculiar way to learn of an historical figure and then spend years studying him, lol. (laughs) Learned a ton about the music halls, panto, and other similar things during my research and still am learning, exclamation point. Yeah, so I just, I really love this. I love the idea of the, the kind of endless treasure hunt for every stray reference to Willie Clarkson. And it does make sense to me because he's such an enigmatic figure. You know, his wig shop was a veritable institution in Victorian and Edwardian London, and virtually everyone in show business knew him professionally, and some of them knew him personally. And so you'd think you'd think people would have talked about him. Um, you'd think he was a public figure. You'd think we'd know more about him, and there's just shockingly little about him in the record. I mean, the best you do have is like, the stray anecdotal reference to him in memoirs. And of course, he's all the more enigmatic because of what happened in the wake of his mysterious death. As you might remember from the episode on Willie Clarkson, insurance companies came forward claiming that Clarkson had committed insurance fraud and maybe arson, though, um, you know, Clarkson's involvement was never definitively proven never definitively proved. And yeah, I mean, there are also all of these questions about whether or not someone was blackmailing Clarkson at the end of his life. So there are just so many question marks circling around this figure. I can understand why someone would want to learn as much about him as he could. And also to um, uh, Michael's comment that he considers his Ripper theory quite fanciful. I will say that's true. And I didn't mention this in the episode on Clarkson, but that quality comes across in his documentary, The Wigmaker of Wellington Street, which you can watch on YouTube if you're curious. The documentary includes a number of illustrations that just represent various scenes. For example, I think when when Willie Clarkson is approaching one of the 
one of the Ripper's victims. And the the illustrations are not cartoons, but I would say they verge on the cartoonish and they just endow the whole documentary with a certain whimsy. And it does come across as though Michael is kind of making an argument that is very much within the wouldn't it be crazy if Willie Clarkson committed these crimes register. So it's much less assertive than other Ripper books I read uh, while putting together this podcast. Now, why don't we take a quick break for an important announcement? Uh, about a month or so ago, The Art of Crime joined Airwave Media, a podcasting network. Uh, this was a major step for The Art of Crime and very exciting to me at the time. Twice a year, Airwave Media conducts a listener survey. And they're doing one right now, and I want to encourage you to take it. You can do so at surveymonkey.com slash R, as in the letter R, slash airwave. Again, the URL is surveymonkey.com slash R slash airwave. Basically, they want to get a sense of who's listening to all of their podcasts, what people like and don't like about each show, and full disclosure, they're also interested in what kinds of advertisers you'd like to hear from. So that's definitely part of the survey. It takes a few minutes to fill out, and you can enter to win a $500 Amazon gift card at the end, so there's an added incentive there. It will also be a big help to me because when you fill out the survey, you have the opportunity to express your enthusiasm for the show straight to the heads of Airwave. And this will let them know that you're enjoying what you're hearing on The Art of Crime. Yeah, that's most of what I have to say about that. Uh, I'll give you the URL one more time. Uh, It's surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave. And I'll include the link in the show notes as well. Again, it would really help me out if you took the survey and let the folks in charge of Airway know how you feel about the show. Great. That's it. Let's return to some questions, shall we? Next one comes from Chad, who lives in Washington, D.C. And Chad asks... Um, did you come across any interesting commentary on the Whitechapel murders from other famous, though perhaps never incriminated, Victorian artists? The answer is yes. And I wanted to talk about one in particular, namely the playwright George Bernard Shaw. So if you've studied theater history, you have almost certainly come across the name of George Bernard Shaw. He represents probably the most significant British playwright in, I would say, the last quarter of the 19th century and maybe the first half or so of the 20th. So he enjoyed an extremely long career and was very prolific, writing almost up until his death, really. And uh, the thing to know about Shaw is that he was a socially conscious playwright, and he was also politically engaged. His most famous play might be Pygmalion, uh, which inspired a number of film adaptations, as well as the musical My Fair Lady, which you might have seen. The basic premise is that a professor who studies phonetics makes a bet that he can pass a cockney woman off as a duchess in six after six months of elocution lessons basically and so with this plot shaw is sort of taking apart the idea of social class and exposing it as 
a set of learned behaviors that really anyone can master regardless of the circumstances they're born into, right? Anyone can learn how to speak quote-unquote proper English and sound like a member of the aristocracy. That's what he's getting at. So as I mentioned uh, a moment or two ago, Shaw was politically active. In fact, he was an outspoken uh, socialist. And I wanted to bring him up partly because he bears a tenuous yet intriguing connection uh, to one of our five canonical victims, namely Polly Nichols. If you cast your mind all the way back to the first episode of the season, The Whitechapel Murders, you will remember that uh, there was a real possibility of social revolution in the air in 1887, so one year before the Whitechapel murders took place. And a populist movement was starting to rise up. And that the epicenter of that movement was Trafalgar Square in central London, where dozens, if not hundreds, of homeless people were sleeping rough uh, on a nightly basis. And we know that Polly Nichols... Um, slept at Trafalgar Square at around this time. Hallie Rubenhold has placed her there in the autumn of 1887. At around this time, protests were taking place in Trafalgar Square and demonstrators were descending, you know, en masse. And there were speeches given during these protests, speeches written and delivered by uh, prominent political activists, artists, intellectuals, so on and so forth. George Bernard Shaw was one of those speakers. He and Polly Nichols could have conceivably been in Trafalgar Square at the same time. Uh, that possibility is out there. So without further ado, let's hear about, about what he had to say about uh, the Ripper. On September 24th, 1888, Shaw wrote a letter to the editor of The Star, and it appeared under the headline, Blood Money to Whitechapel. So here it goes. To the editor of The Star, Sir, will you allow me to make a comment on the success of the Whitechapel murderer in calling attention for a moment to the social question? Less than a year ago, the West End Press, headed by the St. James's Gazette, the Times, and the Saturday Review, were literally clamoring for the blood of the people. So here he's talking about the protests um, that took place in Trafalgar Square and the police clamped down on them. So they were um, clamoring for the blood of the people, hounding on Sir Charles Warren, the police commissioner, to thrash and muzzle the scum who dared to complain that they were starving heaping insult and reckless calumny on those who interceded for the victims, applauding to the skies the open class bias of those magistrates and judges who zealously did their very worst in the criminal proceedings which followed. Behaving, in short, as the proprietary class always does behave when the workers throw it into a frenzy of terror by venturing to show their teeth. And then uh, Shaw describes all of the work that social reformers and various researchers have put into shining a light on the appalling living conditions among the working classes in East London and other poor parts of the city and how it's gone completely ignored by the West End press against which he is railing. So I'm jumping ahead a little bit in the quote. <clears throat> he says, Now all is changed. 
private enterprise has succeeded where socialism failed. Whilst we conventional social democrats were wasting our time on education, agitation, and organization, some independent genius has taken the matter in hand and by simply murdering and disemboweling four women, converted the proprietary press to an inept sort of communism. The moral is a pretty one, and the insurrectionists, the invincibles, and the extreme left of the anarchist party will not, will not be slow to draw it. Humanity, political science, economics, and religion, they will say, are all rot. The one argument that, sorry, the one argument that touches your lady and gentleman is the knife. Yeah, so a pretty, pretty brutal conclusion there. And I wanted to include this commentary in this episode because it underscores one of the major takeaways about the Whitechapel murders. Again, as we discussed in the first episode of this season, if any good can be said to have come from the killing spree, it was that it raised awareness about what it was like to live in um, East in East London, particularly in Whitechapel. It really uh, shined a light on just the hardship that the working classes face on a daily basis. All right, so on to our next question. This one comes from Christine, who lives in New York. Christine asks... If you were forced to prosecute one of these suspects for the Whitechapel murders, which one would you choose? Love this question. If I were forced at knife point to prosecute one of the unusual suspects for the Whitechapel murders, I would I would have to go with Walter Sickert. Never mind the fact that evidence suggests that he was out of the country during four of the five canonical murders. Never mind that. As I say in the episode on Walter Sickert, it is just weird that he keeps popping up in Ripper lore and has not gone away and will not go away, primarily through the efforts of Patricia Cornwell and the two editions of her book, which have come out by now. It's just weird. That's all I have to say about it. It's not the most compelling evidence against, uh, you know, an alleged serial murderer, but that's all I have to say. Okay, and now we come to our last question for today. This comes from Joy, who lives in Los Angeles in the United States. She says, um, I'm very interested in hearing all of your thoughts about the cultural tendency to distrust artists. And here she's referring to um, some of the material that I presented in the episode titled Verdict Not Guilty a couple months ago, where we just thought about what we can learn uh, from the various Ripper theories that we covered this season. Yeah, so this is a big question, and I'm glad Joy asked it now, because I think it cuts to the core of perhaps what fascinated me most while I was making The Unusual Suspects. So basically, we're dealing with a bunch of artists who stand accused of crimes they haven't committed. In the absence of any compelling forensic evidence linking them to these crimes, many Ripper hunters look for signs of culpability or at least potential culpability in the artist's art. I picked up on this early on, and it struck me as so curious. (laughs) Basically, here's why. I think these arguments reveal what we as a society find troubling and 
even dangerous about art and the nature of making art. So I'll just draw two examples from The Unusual Suspects, um, both of which we sort of covered in passing in the Verdict Not Guilty episode, but maybe I can expound a bit on them here. The first has to do with a simple truth, namely that artists often make work about immoral acts, including murder. We are prone to making an assumption that because artists spend a lot of time thinking about, say, murder, that they harbor some sort of impulse to commit it themselves. So we saw this to some degree reflected in the work of Patricia Cornwell and her theory that painter Walter Sickert committed the Whitechapel murders. Sickert painted a picture titled The Camden Town Murder, which was inspired by a real-life homicide committed in um, the early 20th century, the first decade of the 20th century. This homicide remains unsolved. The implicit argument she's making is that because Walter Sickert painted a picture that appears to represent a murder, he must have harbored homicidal tendencies himself. She even intimates that Sickert committed the Camden Town murder in her book. Obviously, this kind of reasoning does not bear a ton of scrutiny. I just keep coming back to Agatha Christie, who turned out who knows how many murder mysteries throughout her career. And I'm like, okay, how many mass graves did Christie finish by the time she stopped writing? I mean, she always had murder on the mind. But the point is that, you know, a novelist can write a murder mystery without ever contemplating murder. And you can extend the same basic argument to actors who play characters who commit murder on stage. And plenty of art, you can extend the argument to uh, plenty of other art forms as well. Yeah, so I think to answer Joy's question more directly, um, there's uh, a widespread anxiety about artists who create work about immoral acts such as murder and crimes in general. Another example that we can draw from The Unusual Suspects takes us back to the disguise hypothesis, which became something of a recurring theme throughout the season. I will say as an aside that this might be the one contribution that I've made to the conversation about Jack the Ripper. I've never encountered another writer who um, addresses the prevalence and tenacity of the disguise hypothesis, the notion that the Ripper evaded detection by altering his appearance. As we discussed in the Verdict Not Guilty episode, I think this boils down to an anxiety about the fact that artists deal in artifice. They are purveyors of falsehood. And in the context of the disguise hypothesis, the idea is that someone like Richard Mansfield is really good at throwing on a costume and altering his comportment to seem like he has someone else. He can turn into Mr. Hyde at the drop of a hat, right? Because he has those skills as an actor, he can perhaps um, use them to nefarious ends and, you know, assume the shape of a gentlemanly Jekyll as he's fleeing the crime scene uh, in Whitechapel. So I think that's a that points to a kind of general anxiety about the artifice of art, as I said. So those are just two examples of our widespread suspicions about 
art and the nature of making art that I was talking about at the beginning of this response. But I'm glad that Joy raised this question now at the beginning of this podcast, really, because I've planned seasons one through nine of the show at this point. And I know that some version of this question will rear its head in just about every season. Uh, It's one that we will return to over and over again. So we have that to look forward to. And on that note, I will pivot to the topic of season two, which I have almost finished writing. Right now, episode one of season two is scheduled to drop on Wednesday, April 4th. And I will hold off on disclosing the theme of the season for the time being, but I will say that I'm extremely excited to share it with you all, partly because it extends well beyond Victorian London. We will travel to, among other places, early 20th century Mexico, Nazi Germany, ancient Rome, post-World War II Tokyo. So we'll, we'll cover a lot of terrain in that season. Uh, And I'm looking forward to it for that reason. All right, that about does it for The Unusual Suspect, season one of The Art of Crime. Um, I've had a blast sharing it with y'all. And before I sign off, I want to make sure that I give you one more friendly reminder to take the Airwave Media Listener Survey. You can do that at surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave. And again, the URL is in the show notes. Um, Until next time. You've been listening to The Art of Crime, created, written, and narrated by yours truly, Gavin Whitehead. Liam Bellman Sharp edited sound and composed the score. Last but not least, a thousand thanks to research and production assistant Ken Symphonies. The Art of Crime is part of the Airwave Media Network. To find out more about their excellent programming, visit www.airwavemedia.com. If you like what you heard on The Art of Crime, please tell the world, by which I mean everyone you know, plus the occasional stranger. Also, if you can, take a moment to rate and review the podcast. It goes a long way in helping others find out about the show. Finally, all throughout history, artists have relied on the support of patrons to make their work. The same holds true for podcasters making shows about historical artists, so please consider making a donation at www.patreon.com slash artofcrimepodcast. Every bit counts and is massively appreciated. As a reminder, be sure to check out the Art of Crime website at www.artofcrimepodcast.com. It features all kinds of images relevant to the show, including maps, drawings, paintings, photographs, sheet music, and more. You can also follow us on Facebook at Art of Crime Podcast, Instagram at Art of Crime Podcast, and Twitter at Art of Crime Pod. If you have questions, comments, or feedback, please don't hesitate to drop me a line at artofcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time.